production. Dr. Neela Janakiramanan is a hand surgeon based in Melbourne. The last two years have been trying for her and her colleagues. There is a significant physical and emotional toll of tending to patients during a once in a generation global pandemic. But putting patients' needs ahead of her own is what Neela believes in most of all, and she's a proud advocate for patient-centred care. She believes it's an essential part of medical training that young surgeons see patients as people, not just as bodies to be operated on. These ideas are explored in her brand new novel, The Registrar. With the frenetic pace of a psychological thriller, The Registrar offers a rare insight into the world of a surgeon in the making from one who has survived it. Welcome to The Weekend Briefing. My name is Jamila Rizvi. In a moment, I'll be joined by Bron for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Dr. Neela Janakiramanan about her new book, The Registrar. Neela Janakiramanan, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Oh, thanks for having me, Jamila. And congratulations, because we are recording on your official book publication day. But as I've just given an extensive intro all about you that's focused on medicine, a few people are going to be shocked by that, right? So tell me about writing fiction in what is quite the career pivot. (laughs) Um, To be honest, I don't think I'm the first doctor who's made that career pivot. I think there's a lot of doctors who write novels, and I think it's because we deal in stories. I mean, we see medicine as a very scientific sort of profession, but I mean, there's science and there's physiology and anatomy, but it all comes down to how it relates to the individual person sitting in front of you. So I think telling stories is actually very much a core part of our business. I wrote the novel, The Registrar, because people love medical drama. Every time there's a new TV show set in a hospital, ER, Grey's Anatomy, The Good Doctor, people love it. But there's not a lot of literature about it and there's particularly not a lot of literature written by women about female doctors, nurses, patients. And I thought that there are so many stories within that specific subgenre that really needed to be told. And hospitals are such an interesting setting for telling stories because it's a place where we go and we really reveal our inner selves to complete strangers. And that process is something that I find really interesting and fascinating. And finally, I think all of us will interact with the health system. Even if we're not healthcare workers, we will all be a patient at some point or another. And I think that can be a really confusing and confronting experience for a lot of people if they don't know what's happening behind the curtain, behind the door, when they're just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting for someone to come and talk to them, explain to them what's going on, offer them care. So all of these things came into why I thought this was a story that was worth telling. The registrar focuses on a woman called Emma Swan who is in her first year as a surgical registrar at a fictional prestigious teaching hospital. She's gone into medicine in the same way that her brother has and her father before them was an eminent surgeon as well. Where did the idea to 
put your central character in a family of doctors and what I would call a family of inevitable pressure, where did that come from? Why was that important Mm. to you? I wanted to write a character who was very normal. I felt that if as soon as you started adding layers of additional uh, demographic disadvantage, it would be very easy to say that perhaps some of the challenges that she faced were due to those other reasons. And the reality is that medicine is very commonly a family profession. My family isn't particularly medical, but a lot of the people that I went to medical school with, their parents were doctors, their siblings were doctors, their grandparents were doctors. And so I thought that putting her in that sort of family environment with the pressures that come from it is actually something that happens on a day-to-day basis. And it makes it easy then to separate away the character and the issues she faces from anything intrinsic within her. This is a character who should know how the systems work because she's grown up in it. It's someone who should find these things easy to navigate and have familial support to help her navigate them. And even she finds it difficult so then I read it, leave it to the reader to extrapolate what that must be like if you're completely foreign to this environment. You say that your family aren't medical, certainly not your immediate family, but I understand that you were inspired to pursue your own career in medicine by your grandfather. Can you tell us about the first time you saw him complete a medical procedure? Yeah, so my grandfather was a GP uh, surgeon in rural India. And when I say GP surgeon, he was a general practitioner, but he did minor procedures. He delivered babies. He lived in a in a town that we would consider quite large by Australian standards, but in India was tiny. And for a long time, he was the only doctor there. So he had his clinic attached to his house, as was often done. So his waiting room was in the backyard. And so when we would go and visit, I'd be running around the backyard with my cousins, my friends, and there would be patients sitting there in his little waiting room, which was an outdoor pergola. And the first operation I saw was actually a tonsillectomy, and I was eight. And I think back to my eight-year-olds now, and I think, gosh, I'm not sure I would do that. And were you scared? I fainted. So he used a gas called, well, not a gas, uh, an anaesthetic called ether uh, to give an anaesthetic. Uh, It's very, very, very old-fashioned. And so I'm not sure if it was the fumes of the ether that made me pass out or just the overwhelming, ah, he's making a cut and there's blood and ah. Um, So that was a really interesting sort of experience. And so in the rest of my family, there aren't any other doctors really, but... That was very much part of his identity and he was someone that I loved deeply and wanted to be like. So can you pinpoint when in your life you moved from having a sense of, oh, my gosh, there's a cut, there's blood, ah, through to I could do that? It's interesting. It's a really slow and gradual process. The first procedure I remember doing on a patient was actually in my fairly early years of medical school. And at that point, the only operating I had done was on cadavers. Uh, People donate their bodies to science so that we can learn the anatomy before we go and practice on real people. And the the first operation I did was a skin cancer excision in, again, a very, very small country town in northwest Victoria, with a general surgeon who went there once a fortnight to do some minor procedures. And this 
patient who was a, you know, your traditional Australian rural farmer had this skin cancer on his neck and the surgeon said to me, go on, cut this out. And I said, no, 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 I can't, I can't. There's like big things there, like big arteries and veins, like I'm, I'm going to kill him. The surgeon's like, no, nah, you're not going to do that. You'll be fine, cut it out. The patient's lying there and he's like, go on, love, go on, oh, have God. a go. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine myself as the patient. If I was listening to that conversation, I'd be like, no, don't let her near me if she thinks she might kill me. <laughs> Tell me about the process of writing because I think so many of us associate doctors and particularly surgeons with some of the hardest working people in the world. We consider it a very skilled profession. Certainly there's an enormous amount of training that goes into it. And then there are often long, gruelling hours and your book does nothing to dissuade us of that fact. But then you're going into the world of writing, which has its own pressures, its own deadlines, but is often a lot more fluid. You know, you can choose to write this morning after breakfast or you can kind of not. And there aren't really huge consequences if the novel's not due for six months, let's say. So how much of your discipline from your medical practice transferred to your writing or was it a completely different exercise for you? No, I actually do think that that fluidity is what makes it possible because there isn't that pressure to have to write and put a certain number of words on a page every single day. My writing is very sporadic I spend a lot of time thinking. Uh, I spend a lot of time driving between workplaces and that is a really great time to think. And so then when I think I've got a chunk sort of in my head that I get can get on paper, I'll just sit down and do it. Uh, similarly with deadlines, deadlines are something that I can manage because I work best with with that little bit of pressure and a date that has to be met. And because I'm now a bit more senior, I do have a bit more flexibility around my work. So I have the capacity to say, okay, I'm going to take these three or four days off in six weeks' time and I'm I'm going to focus on this at the moment. So the two actually work together quite well. One of the things I found somewhat universal after reading The Registrar was that Emma is a doctor and that is the story that we're reading, but we also see all of the other roles that she plays in her life and the people she has to show up for. She's a partner, she's a sister, she's a friend. And then I think of you, you're also a mother of three. You're also someone who's done some incredible advocacy work in your life. I don't want to ask how you do it all because I don't think I'd be asking that if you were a bloke. What I want to ask is when you're changing those hats and moving between those roles, how much of you carries through? How much is it the same person and how much do you feel like you're presenting quite different faces to the world? Oh, that is a very good question, Jamila. One of my core values is to always try and be my authentic self. And what that means is that if a patient is having a hard day, I will hug them and I will cry with them. And if my kids are having a hard day, I will do exactly the same thing. I think that each of those different roles probably requires something different on a day-to-day basis. But I think the the commonality between all of them is, is are probably things that we're all trying to do is to be kind, to be thoughtful, to be compassionate and to think about 
how we would want the other person we were interacting with to treat us if the situations were reversed. So I think that's probably the commonality. How could we be training young doctors better in this country? Mm. I think that's a really complicated question. I think at the very start, we have to be careful about our selection, which is not to say that I think we are or have selected the wrong people. If we stand back and we look at who our medical students are and therefore who our doctors are, they are predominantly privileged, class privileged, economically privileged. Uh, They have predominantly graduated from private schools in urban areas and they predominantly have very high marks, so they're very academic. And particularly the academic side of things is something that we might think is necessary to become a doctor and certainly a minimum academic standard is is absolutely necessary. But there are other countries in the world, such as the Netherlands, where they select by lottery rather than by... Really? Um, yeah. So as long as you meet a, a certain minimum academic standard, which is much lower than what ours is to get into medical school, you can go into a lottery and apply for medical school. And so what that means is that they actually have a much more diverse group of medical students that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different life experience. And I think that that's something that as a society broadly we need to think about because our patients are not solely class privileged living in urban areas with high health literacy. So we need a group of people that can understand the full diversity of the population that we're treating So then you get to the next question of, well, can that be taught? And I think that it can be taught. I just think it's hard to teach it and you have to pay very, very specific attention to teaching it. And teaching doesn't always overcome lived experience. So that is my very complicated answer. I think we need to focus more on how we can serve our patients better but maybe we need to go back and make medicine more inclusive to start off with. It's interesting because your answer there focused on who we select Mm. to undertake medical training in the first place rather than the medical training itself, which I I find fascinating. Yeah. Are we good at training doctors? I mean, like compared to the rest of the world, Australian standards are really high. We produce good quality doctors. Is there anything we're not doing very well? Yeah, so I I have worked and trained in various parts of the world and I would say that the standard of uh, general practice and specialist care in this country is almost unparalleled. It's extremely high. But Australian doctors burn to shine. We are absolutely put into very challenging circumstances in order to train. Uh, The training environment is rife with bullying and harassment, with long working hours, with incredible pressures, both from our immediate colleagues and from administrators and going all the way up to the health bureaucracies in terms of the number of patients that we are expected to treat at that incredibly high standard. So therefore, particularly after the pandemic, where that workload and that complexity has gone up even further, 
it shouldn't be a surprise that so many people are burning out and choosing to leave the profession as a consequence. pivot for a moment because that's what we do uh, in the 2020s. Uh, we do a lot of pivoting. Um, and I want to ask about um, another really important advocacy role that you've played in your life. You were one of the medical leads in the Kids Off Nauru campaign. For those who are feeling like, well, that, that sounds familiar. What, what do I know about that? Could you reset for us and tell me a little bit about how the Australian medical community came together at that time and your role in that process? Mm. So most Australians, I think, would know of the policy of offshore processing of refugees and asylum seekers, uh, which has been going on for nine years now uh, and involved transferring refugees and asylum seekers who arrived to Australia by boat to Nauru, which is uh, an island in the Pacific, and to Manus Island. After that cohort of people had been detained there for many years, what we saw was an accumulation of both physical health and mental health issues. And the first, not the first real crisis, that's the wrong thing to say, a large crisis happened in late 2018 where a number of children who had been detained in Nauru at that point for five years uh, started showing symptoms of a mental health condition known as resignation syndrome. And it's called that because basically their children were giving up. Um, they were not getting out of bed. They were not walking around. They were not interacting with their caregivers. Some of them stopped eating. And so these children were desperately sick. It was portrayed in some parts of the media as a hunger strike, but if you've ever met a five-year-old, you'd know that they're not capable of a hunger strike for political reasons. These kids were just so sad and depressed that they just gave up. So that required quite a significant emergency response because the, the government and the ministry at the time didn't want to transfer these children out of Nauru for medical care. Nauru itself, despite quite a lot of government, Australian government, investment into their hospital there had a fairly limited service. And so there was a big public campaign spearheaded by a lot of the NGOs who are working in that space, but also with the backing of a large part of the medical community who were receiving these children into our emergency departments and intensive care units. So we were seeing how sick they were um, to get all of the kids off Nauru and into Australia where they could live within the community, even if they didn't have a visa to stay permanently and receive the, the medical care that they needed. The consequence of that was really a lifting of the lid of how desperate the situation was in Manus and Nauru. And at the time, Dr Karen Phelps was in office and she and the Labor Party who were in opposition and a group of crossbenchers put forward something that was called the Medivac legislation. And what it basically said is that any refugee or asylum seeker who had untreated health conditions that were assessed by two Australian doctors as needing health care that couldn't be provided in Manus Island or Nauru ought to be transported to Australia to receive that medical care. 
the most confronting part of that legislation is acknowledging that there was a need for that legislation, that there were humans under our control and protection without freedom of movement who had health conditions that they were not able to seek care for from the health services that we as taxpayers were ultimately paying for. So that Medivac legislation was passed in early 2019 and then a huge number of refugees and asylum seekers at this time now remember that all the children have come off so it was all adults made the Australian medical community aware of the depths of their neglected health issues. This included things like kidney stones that had not received treatment, and anyone who's ever had a kidney stone would know what a painful condition that is. Um, It included broken bones that hadn't mended correctly. It included surgery or other procedures that had been undertaken by visiting doctors, usually not Australian, overseas, while those people were in detention and had complications. Um, So it was a huge depth and breadth of health conditions. And one of the things that we presented to a Senate inquiry into the repeal of the Medivac legislation was that over 95% of detainees had physical health conditions, 95% of them had mental health conditions as well, and most people had multiple untreated health conditions. So it wasn't just one. Most people had three, four, five problems uh, that they hadn't been able to seek medical care for. So the Australian medical community really came together. Lots of people undertook telehealth uh, consultations with refugees and asylum seekers. Um, We could only do telehealth in Manus Island because Nauru actually enacted local legislation to prevent that. And as a consequence, some hundreds of refugees and asylum seekers were brought to Australia for medical treatment. It was a few years ago now, but uh, you and your colleagues should be congratulated for that extraordinary achievement. In this election, the question of Australia's uh, offshore detention system and um, the scale and size of our humanitarian program and the makeup of that humanitarian program was another thing that kind of didn't really rate a mention in this election campaign. And, you know, that's what election campaigns are like. They always they have to focus on something, which means you don't focus on something else. And that doesn't mean that something else isn't important. But I do think the political heat has kind of come out of this issue. Does that mean we can sensibly be not so worried anymore about what is going on in these facilities or is it just a matter of things are just as bad, we're just not paying as much attention? Um, There are not as many individuals who are being held offshore as there were um, five, six years ago. The facilities are certainly not closed and the individuals who were detained back then, certainly not all of them have been resettled. And ultimately, this is what refugees and asylum seekers require is uh, resettlement so that they can live like the rest of us. They can get jobs, they can have freedom, they can seek their own medical care from their own clinicians without the oversight of the government. Um, I think it is still an issue. The reality is that There are a lot of conflicts around the world and there are a lot of circumstances where people are not safe. And I think at the heart of it, 
most Australians are generous and most Australians would say not only that it is it ought to be a protected human right to flee something where your life is in danger, but also that it is unfair to drag out the processing procedures for such a long time that it becomes humane. I think we can all acknowledge that there is some amount of time that needs to be taken to check people's identity, make sure that they're safe um, before allowing them to live in the community and potentially even giving them a permanent visa. But I also think that most people in the back of their heads would think that that is a process that would take months and not nine years. And that is where it becomes really difficult and unacceptable. And moving forwards, that's what I would like to see is certainly an an end to prolonged detention. Noting that if you commit a crime and you are put in prison, there are really strong safeguards around that. Whereas if you come to Australia by boat and you are effectively put into conditions that are very similar to prison, we don't offer those same safeguards and those people don't even know when the end of their so-called sentence will be. So I think that is something that we really need to be vigilant about. And I think we should all stand up and say that offshore processing is high risk because it is out of sight, out of mind, out of our direct supervision and surveillance, often run by private contractors, and it costs a lot of money, the billions that have been spent on offshore processing, to then see that lives and bodies have been destroyed as a consequence that isn't something that any of us should be comfortable with paying for. So we need to work out how we're going to manage these irregular maritime arrivals, as they are called um, in the lingo, in a more humane manner. Neela, thank you for the care and the skill and the compassion uh, that you have brought to your work as a surgeon, uh, your work as an advocate and now to your work as a published author. Congratulations on the registrar. Oh, thank you, Jamila. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Neela Janakiramanan. You can buy her new book, The Registrar, in all the good bookstores. You could probably even buy it in some bad ones as well. It's also available, uh, signed copies, in fact, are available online now at Booktopia. Don't go away. The weekend list is coming up. It is weekend briefing time and Bron is here with me. I am recording today, Bron, from Ngunnawal country in Canberra. It is beautiful and sunny, but I am thinking about people all over the country where that is not the case, uh, particularly around the Sydney region. I hope everyone is safe and well. We're going to try and keep our recommendations focused on things you can do uh, where you are right now. Bron is going to kick us off. What do you got? So my first recommendation is an episode of The Kick Pod uh, hosted by Laura Henshaw and Steph Claire Smith, who have both been on The Weekend Briefing before. They've had amazing episodes and they do all the brilliant work with Keep It Cleaner. They had an episode come out not long ago called Staying Safe When Travelling, How Two Sisters Escaped Attempted Human Trafficking. This story was unbelievable. It was recommended to me by a friend, Rachel, who is co-founder of Francesca Jewelry alongside her sister, Hannah. They were overseas on this buying trip in 2016. They go through this story of how they were just out at a bar 
like hadn't had that many drinks. Hannah fell to the floor. Um, Rachel goes through this story of an incredible luck to get out of this situation, how the police corruption was involved, how they were followed. This story, it just at every turn, it was like you couldn't believe what was happening. Rachel then says, you know, this is the first time she's publicly shared that this happened to her. Um, But yeah, it was unbelievable. I don't want to give too much away, but at the end, they give these stats that every 30 seconds, someone is trafficked around the world. It is just unbelievable stats. And they also go through like some recommendations on how to be more aware when you're traveling and how to do it more safely. But unbelievable episode, just wild. You have 100% sold it, Uh, both in the tone of your voice and the description. Um, I'm marking that one down for my flight back home uh, for a listen. Um, I want to recommend some really geeky things, Bron, uh, because I'm in Canberra at the moment um, for work, but also because it's school holidays and in school holidays, I take the child to where the grandparents are uh, for assistance. But my kid who is seven years old has had the best time in Canberra. So this is a recommendation for all the parents out there uh, who've got kids, especially young ones, like sort of under seven or eight, right down to like the little ones. Canberra's the best, you guys. There is so much to do for children. All the national monuments and institutions and things have made themselves really kid-friendly. Like my son went nuts at the mint, like just watching (laughs) giant pools of gold coins being made and stuff was so thrilling to him, especially for a kid who just sees his parents tap with their phones to buy things. Like real money is thrilling uh, to him. He also got to make his own coin, which was great. He was at Questacon, of course. Questacon has the earthquake machine still that it had back when I used to do my Questacon visit in year six. Such a classic, Questacon. They also, uh, you have an opportunity to run against the fastest runners in the world in real time. So they project the 100 metre races onto the wall and you can race them and you can see that like in 10 seconds they are like so far ahead of, and you haven't even really started, you haven't even stood up. He has just been having an absolute ball. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery has some uh, amazing exhibitions going on at the moment and the whole city is just so well put together for families and making the school holidays a whole bunch of fun. Uh, I don't recommend the Dinosaur Museum. That was terrifying, but my kid would recommend it. So underrated, Canberra. Um, my next recommendation is if you're thinking about gift giving at the moment, if you've got someone's birthday coming up, an anniversary, I've implemented with a few of my close friends and, and my partner that if we have a birthday coming up, if we have an anniversary coming up, we are no longer doing gifts. We only do nice restaurants as the gift, which is so good for so many reasons. You don't have to think about what to buy anymore. You get to have a nice night out, even if it's not your birthday. You get to go to places you wouldn't normally, like we always make it somewhere that we wouldn't normally go anyway. So a nicer restaurant rather than just our local. And it's just so fun. You get to try new things around the city, you get to support new businesses. You know, it's just the most fun and the easiest way to get away from having to think, you know, Christmas, birthdays. It feels like every month something is coming up where you have to think about it. And this just takes all the pressure off. 
Yeah, you also get to spend time together, right? Which is the whole point of celebrating someone's birthday is because you like spending time with them. Exactly. I love that. Great recommendation. Uh, my final recommendation, folks, is celebrating the fact that it's NAIDOC week. Uh, happy NAIDOC week to um, our First Nations listeners in particular, but to all of you, I hope you got along to some amazing community-led events this week. I was lucky enough to get along to a couple of them. One on Wurundjeri country back where I live at home, went to an extraordinary breakfast panel discussion with some First Nations women. And then also got to take my son to some uh, local activities here on Ngunnawal country where we're visiting my parents. NAIDOC week is a great time to celebrate and to reflect on our country's relationship with its first peoples and how we can do a lot better. But I always worry about weeks and days that we kind of pay attention for a moment and then we stop. I think the best way to make sure that you stay alert and stay focused is to follow people on social media, listen to people on podcasts. So go and search out those First Nations voices. I want to recommend a few episodes of The Weekend Briefing with Brooke Boney, with Samantha Harris, with Rosie Waterland, with Thomas Mayer, who are all First Nations people. Um, You can scroll back through the catalogue and find some of those. Also go hunting for great First Nations people to follow on Instagram and on your social media. I particularly love following Teela Reid. I love following um, Nakia Louie. I love following Miranda Tapsell. I love following Briggs. I love following Tony Arm. Strong, all of them great political content, but also just funny, intelligent, smart people who post really good stuff. Uh, so go and seek out and curate your social media feeds and your podcast feeds so you've got some more First Nations voices in those feeds. That's it for today's episode of The Weekend Briefing. We have loved having your company. I hope you have enjoyed being in our company. If you have, you should make sure that you head to the listener app now and follow The Briefing to make sure you never miss an episode. Or of course, you can follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a lovely rating and review while you are there. When you do that, it helps other people to learn about The Briefing and The Weekend Briefing. It means we come up in more people's feeds and searches and that's what we want to be able to bring this content to more great people. So make sure you leave a rating and a review. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.